Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest-growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. A metaphor. The, the U.S. government sucking in all of that data about the phone calls that we make, when we're talking, who we're talking to, how long we're talking, is a fishing trawler dragging a net across the high seas. The government and its crew at the National Security Agency wants to catch bad guys, terrorists. The crew on the fishing boat wants to catch, let's make it, tuna fish. But the fisherman's net also drags along with it all of those good guys who are swimming out there, those cute little dolphins. And the dolphins die, which is a clear harm to them. But is there a harm to us in the data that is collected by the NSA and its net? In fact, the argument is that the NSA's big net is saving lives, keeping all of us little dolphins out there safe. Yes? No? Well, it sounds like there's a debate in that, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Spy on me. I would rather be safe. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. in partnership with the McCain Institute for International Leadership. I'm John Donvan. We have four superbly qualified debaters, Americans all, but two against two in this debate, for and against this motion, spy on me, I would rather be safe. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose the winner and only one side wins. Let's meet the team arguing for this motion. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Stuart Baker. And Stuart, you were the NSA's top lawyer, and later on you became the first Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. And in your memoir, Skating on Stilts, you wrote about having to build the whole thing from scratch, recruiting the right people, setting up a budget. And at the end of it, you wrote this, quote-unquote, I did that, now I'm tired. So have you caught up on your sleep? Well, I may never be tan, but I'm rested and I'm ready. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Baker. And Stuart, your partner is? Rich Falkenrath, with whom I worked uh, at the Department of Homeland Security and one of the people I admired most uh, in uh, my government service. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Falkenrath. Richard, you are also arguing for this motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. Uh, You've held a lot of leadership positions in U.S. counterterrorism efforts. You were Deputy Homeland Security Advisor under the Bush administration. You were New York City's Police Department's Deputy Commissioner for Counterterrorism. Both jobs, tough places, tough times, but which is the harder place to live in, New York or Washington? (laughs) Washington's harder. I'll take traffic gridlock over partisan gridlock any day. Ooh, clever, clever. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Falconrath. 
Our motion is this, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. We have two debaters now arguing against this motion. First, let's welcome, please, David Cole. David, you are a professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. Uh, You are one of the country's leading civil liberties advocates. You've litigated many uh, constitutional cases, big ones in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, We read that when you went off to law school, you did not actually plan on being a lawyer, but you were going to be a writer. You didn't. So I'm wondering, is, is the nation missing one great American novel? Well, I think it turns out the truth is stranger than fiction. If I'd written a novel saying the NSA was spying on every one of us, no one would have believed it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, David Cole. These guys on fire already. And your partner is? Mike German, one of the few people in the world who's worked for both the FBI and the ACLU. Exactly. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) Michael German. Yeah, you worked for the FBI for 16 years. You were a special agent in domestic terrorism for 12 of those years. Then, then you moved on and you resigned in 2004. Now you're working for, on policy for the ACLU. And I'm just wondering, does, how does being, having all that undercover experience come into play for you now? Uh, well, the first rule of working undercover is now never telling anyone you've ever worked undercover. Oh, so. yeah. Boy, did <laughs> I make a mistake. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Michael German. And now we go on to round one, opening statements from each of our debaters in turn. Speaking first for this motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe, Richard Falkenrath. He is the principal, a principal at the Chertoff Group and former New York City Police Department Deputy Commissioner for Counterterrorism. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Falkenrath. I'm going to make three points uh, in this opening statement. The programs that we're going to talk about tonight really do matter for security. And for me, having been Deputy Commissioner of Counterterrorism at the NYPD and then three different jobs in the, in the White House uh, before, during, and after 9-11, I can really tell you this uh, first, on a firsthand basis. Uh, it is not abstract. Uh, it is real, no kidding, uh, lives at stake sort of business. turns out a terrorist plot is not that difficult to stop if you know about it. And finding out about it in the first place is by far the hardest step in the process. And the overwhelming number of incidents that we've had since 9-11, that original lead, what's called the predication for further investigative steps, has come from electronic surveillance of one form or another. So these programs really do matter. Second, we are for lawful surveillance, lawful forms of electronic surveillance, things which uh, clearly backed up by the Constitution, by statute, and by court interpretation, are permissible. So don't for a second think that Stuart and I are arguing for anything that is illegal. And there is an extensive body of law that governs when, how, where these systems can be deployed. That system has evolved in such a way over the last 35 years that is really nothing short of an enormous success for the American privacy and civil liberties community. It's hard to believe, but it's a fact that 35 years ago, there was no statutory constraint and no, no jurisprudential constraint on the ability of the President of the United States to conduct electronic surveillance inside the United States for foreign intelligence purposes. It was unfettered. Now it's fettered quite significantly, first with the creation of a FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, with an, an act in 1978, and then adjusted in important ways with the FISA Modernization Acts of the last five years. The third thing I want to say is how unusual this area is in Washington. Name me another issue in public life, health care or taxation or entitlement reform or what to do in the Middle East, where you have the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judiciary all unanimous about the contours and direction of a specific program. It's remarkable that this happens, not just the three branches of government, but in the case of the executive branch, a set of policies and programs which have survived partisan transition. So these programs which we have today emerged in the latter half of the Bush administration and have survived essentially unchanged into the Obama administration, two leaders who could not be more different, and they are unchanged. And so this is where the other side of this debate really have a pretty tough argument because you have broad bipartisan majorities in both chambers of Congress, the two presidents of different parties, different characters, one, the current one, quite liberal and quite educated in constitutional law, he taught at University of Chicago, and the judiciary all backing up and saying it's fine. 
So what the other side has to do, and it's a tough burden, I think, is say they've all got it wrong, we've got it right, we know better. And I think, frankly, that's a pretty uh, high burden for them. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard Falkenroth. Our motion is this, spy on me, I would rather be safe. And our next debater will be speaking against the motion. He is Michael German, Senior Policy Counsel for the American Civil Liberty Union's Washington Legislative Office and a former FBI Special Agent. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael German. Thank you. Thank you, John. I oppose the motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe, because I'm not a terrorist or a violent criminal. And spying on me isn't going to keep anybody safe. And unless you're a terrorist or a criminal, you should also vote no, whether you care about your privacy or not, because spying on you is only going to waste security resources and fill important intelligence databases with irrelevant information. Spying on you and spying on me makes us less free and less safe. We know that spying on us didn't protect us from the Christmas Day underwear bomber, from the Times Square bomber from Najibullah Zazi's crew, who got an explosive into New York City, but ultimately flushed it down the toilet rather than detonating it. Luck is what protected us in these cases, not mass surveillance. Spying also didn't protect us from the Boston Marathon bombers or shootings at Fort Hood or at an Army recruiting center in Arkansas. These terrorists were investigated by the FBI before they went on their rampages, and yet they weren't stopped. In a 16-year FBI career, I can honestly say I never found a criminal or a terrorist by rummaging through the personal information of innocent people. Traditional law enforcement standards of reasonable suspicion and probable cause don't just exist to protect our rights. These standards actually helped me as an investigator because they forced me to focus on the right people for the right reasons, to follow evidence rather than flawed hunches or profiles. In my undercover work against neo-Nazis and anti-government militias, there were a lot of people saying things I didn't like. But I knew I had to have a reasonable basis to assume somebody was was engaging in violent activity or in illegal activity. And this standard helped me focus my investigations properly so those cases successfully prevented terrorist attacks, ended in successful prosecutions, and didn't violate anyone's rights. Today, our government's spying on all of us in a lot of different ways. Uh, It collects all of our telephone records on an ongoing daily basis. It photocopies every piece of domestic mail. It intercepts Americans' international communications and financial transactions. The FBI even collects census information so it can map American communities by race and ethnicity. The problem is that these programs collect so much information that the signal gets lost in the noise. So it's not a surprise that the NSA can point to only one terrorism-related prosecution that might not have happened absent gobbling up all of our telephone numbers. And that was a a material support for terrorism case that involved a $8,000 transmittal to Somalia. Think of the billions of dollars these programs cost and how that could have been spent on so many different things, including things that improve security. Instead of making us safe, these mass surveillance programs cast undeserved suspicion on innocent people simply because they're, they're linked somehow to a suspect, not a terrorist, but a suspect, often by two or three degrees of separation like that old Kevin Bacon game. The difficulty resolving this false suspicion leads to bloated watch lists. The watch list, over a million names on it now, but often not the right names like the underwear bombers. The flood of data coming into the intelligence community is so overwhelming the agents that, that it's harming our, our security. The National Counterterrorism Center says it receives 5,000 pieces of information and puts 350 people on the watch list every day. A study of intelligence community analysts published earlier this year included some interesting quotes. One analyst said, there's just so much information. How do I know which of 3,000 cables to pay attention to? It's an unrealistic expectation. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. And here's where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, arguing it out over this motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. 
You have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. Stuart Baker, he is former general counsel of the NSA and the first assistant secretary for policy for the Department of Homeland Security, currently a professor, uh, currently a partner at the law firm Steptoe & Johnston. Ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Baker. Thanks, John. um, Mike Drummond has has put the problem, I think, as directly as it could be. When, if ever, is it appropriate for the government to gather data on large populations, everybody, in order to make us more safe? That's the question. Uh, And I'll take his challenge of saying, when has spying on everybody, when, when has gathering all of the data on everybody, innocent or not, uh, helped us stop uh, terrorist attacks. And let's take the Zazi case, uh, the Times Square bombing case, uh, the uh, underwear bomber. When I was at DHS, one of the things we fought very hard to do was something that I think my German would call spying on everyone. We said we want the airlines to give us the travel reservation information and the passport information on everybody who's flying into the United States. Everybody, not the, just the suspects. We need to know who's coming here. Now, let's take the underwear bomber. Uh, the people who did airport uh, security had no information about him, and not surprisingly, they didn't check him very carefully, and he got right past them. It turned out that when he la- was due to land, he had already been flagged by the customs folks who had access to that data as somebody that they were worried about. Uh, so he would have been caught if we'd had the information earlier, and he would have been caught when he landed. Uh, that's indeed probably why al-Qaeda wanted to blow up the plane before he had to get past the customs officials. The same thing is true for the uh, Times Square bomber, where – After the bombing, the FBI got a phone number. They asked our uh, guys, do you have that phone number? Did anybody with that phone number come into the United States? Turned out that he'd given that same phone number uh, to the airline for his reservation data. The department was able to identify him, provide the data, start a manhunt, uh, and then he got on the plane – Uh, and was about to leave the country. The only reason we caught him is because we had data on everybody who was getting on that plane, and we were able to run the information in the background and determine this is the guy we're looking for. He's on the plane. Uh, He would have gotten away, but for the data, which Mike German calls spying on everybody, I would call it gathering data that is already in the hands of third parties giving it to the airlines. They're going to use it to decide whether you get chicken or tornadoes uh, uh, and whether you get that three inches of extra uh, legroom. You know, I'm happy to have that information also used to make sure I actually arrive at my destination. That's uh, that's the real question we have here is can we use data that we've given to a third party? Can the government use data that you've given to a third party to try to find terrorists? This is billing information that you've given that we've all given to the uh, uh, phone companies, it is searched by law enforcement outside of the NSA program 1.3 million times a year. What the NSA did at the end of the day through the program and through the safeguards that they established for that program, uh, they required – yes, we gather the information, but no one can search it without articulable, reasonable suspicion – passed on by a lawyer. It'll be audited. A limited number of people will have access to it. At the end of the day, 300 numbers went into that on a given year. There were searches to find who they were talking to. 500 numbers came out as potentially suspicious. And only then did the government go out to try to find out whose name was associated with that, uh, uh, those phone numbers. 500 people versus and all used for terrorist purposes, all carefully scrubbed versus 1.3 million searches done by law enforcement every day without bringing 1984 home to America. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart Baker. Our motion is spy on me. I would rather be safe. And now our final debater making an opening statement is David Cole. He will be arguing against this motion. He's a professor at Georgetown University Law Center and a volunteer attorney for the Center for Constitutional Rights. Ladies and gentlemen, David Cole. The NSA is collecting 
uh, information on every time every one of us calls or texts anybody. Your son, your daughter, your mother, your doctor, your AA mentor, your old girlfriend, your new girlfriend. (laughs) That's what they're collecting. It's not passenger data about people getting on airplanes. It's literally every phone call. And this is a program that the NSA lied to Congress to keep secret from us. When the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, was asked point blank, are you collecting data on millions of Americans? He said, in Congress, under oath, he said no. Lied to us, why? Because if we knew that this program was, on, uh, was underway, we wouldn't accept it. I'm going to suggest that you should vote against the program because it violates core principles of a democracy, transparency and privacy. A healthy democracy demands transparency from the government and privacy for the citizens. But it seems that today we have reversed that. With the government demanding transparency from us, but insisting on secrecy with respect to the programs that it employs. National security is a compelling state interest, and it is justifiable to engage in surveillance of a range of of kinds in order to keep us safe. But we have a right to have a say in how far the government goes in spying on us. Uh, And we were denied that say and denied it in the worst possible way uh, through secrecy and lies. We should also be concerned about the program because it invades our privacy. Privacy is critical. It's essential to human development. It's essential to intimate relations. It's essential to political freedom. People can't speak freely when they fear that the government may well be listening in. Stewart suggests, well, if, if, if Verizon has it, Why should we be concerned if the government gets it? Well, I think there are a number of reasons we should be concerned. First of all, Verizon doesn't have the power to lock you up. It doesn't have the power to indict you. It doesn't have the power to investigate you for tax evasion because it doesn't like your politics, which we've seen this government do in the past. Uh, We saw it in the the 60s and 70s with a a, a national security program that ended up focusing on anti-war protesters, civil war, I mean, civil rights activists, Martin Luther King, and women's rights activists. So it's not an abstract concern. It's a real uh, concern. So I think because the NSA program turns democracy on its head, demanding that our lives be transparent and insisting on secrecy for the government, you should vote against the motion. Thank Thank you, you, David Cole. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. Now on to round two. Round two is where the debaters address one another directly and answer questions from me and from you, our live audience here in Washington, D.C. I want to go to the side that's arguing for this motion that's more comfortable with, uh, with the surveillance programs that are in place and say to you that your, your opponents have made the argument that, that this program that the NSA conducted really affronted his sense of privacy just in a very basic way. Now, you, your side, you're not denying the fact that to some degree there's a compromise of privacy. It's just not enough to count. And I want to know why that is. Where, where is your line, uh, Stuart Baker, on just how willing to be spied on you are? There's, there's no doubt that when the government collects data, everybody in a democracy ought to be concerned and want to make sure that it is handled in as privacy-protective a fashion as possible, consistent with actually having it be effective. Uh, the difficulty here is uh, – the, the, the protections here – are built into the back end of the system. That is to say, the government has the data, but just because it has it doesn't mean it's allowed to look at it. It's set up a whole set of rules, court-enforced, aggressively audited, limited uh, number of people who can get access to this data and clear rules for when they can do it. They don't have any ability to look at people for... So so in answer to my question, if the safeguards were not in place, you would have a great deal more concern. Yes, absolutely. All right, so let me take that to the other side. They're they're arguing that, in fact, while that data is there, that there are built-in safeguards. And those things are for real. Uh, but Michael German, um, do you do you trust in the safeguards, or what is your response to their basic argument that maybe it's not so nice, but it's safe? Uh, well, I, I guess the easy two-word response would be Edward Snowden, 
right? If this data and all this stuff was so protected and so well-regulated and, and so controlled, how would Edward Snowden have gotten so much access to it? And luckily, because Edward Snowden did get so much access to it and because we are still benefiting from information that's coming forward, what has become clearer and clearer, the, the, the NSA was misrepresenting the program, I'll say that in the nicest way, uh, and continually going beyond the scope of the minimization procedures and the rules to the, to the extent that in 2011, Judge Bates said it was unconstitutional. With B- the bottom line, then, are you saying that you don't trust the system? I don't trust any system that doesn't have effective public oversight. Richard Falconer. Uh, it's worth uh, – neither do I – neither Stewart or I. We think it's effective uh, in this case. And you've left out a few facts. Um, so this program, the one that draws your ire so strongly, the bulk acquisition of telephone call records, first point – the Supreme Court has held since the late 70s that this data, like what number called what number at what time for how long, is not privacy information. Getting it from the government is not a search. Now, going beyond what is strictly necessary from the, what the Supreme Court says, the Congress has authorized this provision. It's called Section 215. It was in the Patriot Act. It amended the FISA regulation. People in, on your side of this debate were against it then and you're still against it now. But finally, you leave out the fact that this program, the bulk acquisition of telephone call records for narrow counterterrorism purposes, has been authorized 34 times by 14 different federal judges in writing. They said they would not have authorized it but for the safeguards in place, and every 90 days they have to do it again. All right, let's let David Cole respond. To to Richard's point about we we don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy with respect to this information, Mike Hayden, the, the uh, former head of uh, NSA, uh, CIA, has said, if, if I can get all of that phone data about who you've called uh, over a period of time, I don't need to listen to what you're saying. I can get such a, a, a portrait of who you are uh, that I don't even need the content. This stuff is more private than the content itself. Dave, but I, I don't think that I, I directly heard an answer or an articulated answer to why you don't trust the, the, the safeguards, that you, why you, you said they're not credible. Why, why don't you find them credible? Well, first of all, the, uh, Richard's point about the Supreme Court was the Supreme Court has not found that the safeguards are credible here. What the Supreme Court found was in the 70s, before Al Gore invented the Internet, uh, uh, it found that, w- that when you make these phone calls, uh, you don't have an expectation of privacy with respect to the data regarding who you called and how long you called for. Immediately, Congress responded and said, yes, we do have an expectation of privacy. And they passed a law that forbade the government from getting it without individualized suspicion. This law, the government has now turned around and perverted in secret to uh, get the very information that Congress originally said we shouldn't get and to get not just the data with respect to one suspect, which is what was at issue in the Supreme Court case in the 70s, but to get every piece of phone data of every one of us every time we make a call. Richard Falcon, right. Let me try to put this in terms of everyone can understand the utility of this. So Professor Cole, Mike German, Stuart Baker, I, John, we're here at the same place, same time, participating in complex operation. I, in fact, never had a phone call with David Cole. Nonetheless, we're here doing something relatively complicated. Now, it turns out... You mean putting on this show? Yeah. Yes. We, okay. talk, we talk to another person. You have person. no idea how complicated We talk to another is. person <laughs> who, who is in the audience and was the coordinator of this, who then put us together, right? That is how plots are unraveled. They find out about one perp, they look at the communications pattern, they identify the network, and they can diffuse the plot. So imagine this was not a debate but a bombing. This is how this call record data is how it gets unraveled and stopped, and it's why it matters. This data, for very good reasons, the government and the Congress and the court do not hold that you have the same expectations of the right to privacy as you do in your bedroom. Let me bring in Michael German and move the topic a little bit to the issue of practicality because, Michael, you made the case in your opening statement against this motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. You made the case that the flood of data is actually – it's overload, that it can't be used. And yet we heard Stuart Baker, your opponent, get up and go through a number of cases that he worked where, in fact, the, the availability of the data after crimes were committed helped um, track down – put together how the plot was put together and make some pretty decent arrests. First of all, it was sold as a preventative measure. This is for preventing terrorism, not for solving a a, a terrorist bombing. So, you know, I I think that the analysts at the NCTC really say it all. So so another I was going to quote, there are so many databases, people don't even know what buttons to push. They don't know where to get information, or they may even already have it and not know it. 
Another said, more information isn't necessarily better. Better information is better. So that's what we have to focus on. How, how do we let law enforcement have the tools it needs to get the bad guys without impacting the rights of the rest of us? And I think the founders did a pretty good job of setting up a system. There, there have been these cases that they say these were solved with, with this program. So you we don't know whether out- he's telling the truth. Right, because the, the not public... That and I want to make no, clear no, no. that you're no, not no, no. calling of kissing him with dishonesty. What I'm saying is there's no check to know whether the story is true It's also worth noting that Stewart did not say that the NSA data mining program solved any of these. What he said was the passenger data program. When the NSA was asked point blank by Congress and by a friendly member of Congress, can you tell us some terrorist plots that you've stopped by virtue of the NSA data mining program, he said yes, one. And it was the one that Mike referred to earlier. It was about an $8,000 transmission. And the, and the member of Congress who was friendly to this, to the program, said, wait a minute, you have, you have violent – you have cases of violence, right, that you stop, not just transfer of money. And the NSA guy had to say, so well, Stuart, actually, Stuart no. Baker, we've been quoting you for, for quite a few minutes here without letting you speak. I, listen, so it's, I, I, it's I, I think turn. I'm winning. Uh, uh, yeah, I – I have to say there's a little confusion here. Uh, I hear Mike German saying uh, uh, you know, you, you, all of these th- data collection programs are bad. Uh, and I think I hear Professor Cole saying, oh, no, spying on us is fine if you're gathering data about travel reservations or border crossings. All of that data is, isn't the kind of spying on us that we're opposed to. We're opposed to this one program that relates to NSA. Uh, on the question of whether NSA uh, and its program responds to a very real problem, let's remember how they got started with this program. In the months before 9-11, NSA was listening to communications in Yemen and they heard calls from an al-Qaeda operative what they didn't know is that Al Qaeda operative was planning the hijacking in the United States, and those calls were coming from inside the United States because they had no way to look inside the United States to see where these calls were coming from. Uh, if they had known months before the uh, attack, there would have been an all points uh, bulletin for that person. They would have found him, and probably the attack would not have occurred. When you have a failure like that, You ask, what can we do to make sure that never happens again? And this program responds in part to that concern. And I think, uh, you know, that's a a lesson that is written in blood for the National Security Agency. Michael Again, the public record disputes that. The CIA did know he was in the United States. That the CIA wasn't talking to the NSA or the FBI or customs is a totally different issue than whether they needed to collect the information. There were people in our intelligence community in both the CIA and NSA a who knew they were A few people here and there, but the NSA did not know because they had no tools to know it. Uh, uh, to say, well, if somebody else had done their job perfectly, you wouldn't have needed this program, is to say, you know, uh, if the world were perfect, we wouldn't need counterterrorism. But programs. you have to fix the problem that exists, not create a new problem by gathering data you don't need. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. We have four panelists, two teams of two, arguing this motion. Does domestic spying keep us safe? Stay with us. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. We are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, arguing it out over this motion. Spy on me. I'd rather be safe. Question, sir, right there. Hi, my name is Michael. Is there an alternative implementable replacement to to these data collection programs to keep us safe? I think there is. I, I think David Cole. The, the framers uh, came up with an alternative. It's an alternative that we were used for 200-plus years. What, what the Fourth Amendment was designed to stop was dragnet surveillance, general search warrants that gave the government the power to just pick up everybody's information in the hope that they'd find a bad guy. So I think we should stick with the way we've been doing it for 200 years and not let technology and the Internet push us towards dragnet surveillance. We have, have in fact, stuck with that for information the Supreme Court deems personal 
privacy information. We just don't for this category of information, which you think should be categorized, but the rest of the the legal system in the United States doesn't. Well, but that's, that's actually the problem. So, but that's I mean, your wrong. standard still applies to content. What we're talking about here is information which you or whoever have given to a third party, namely a telecommunications provider, and that they have in their system to use for their purposes. And as Stuart explained, the government needs for its purposes from time to time. So you're confusing the discussion by suggesting they're the same. These are different categories of information. The entire system is built around this distinction. Well, I'm not the only one who says that this information is, it gives all kinds of private information. Mike Hayden has said that it's more valuable than the content itself in terms of determining what someone's doing. That's number one. Number two, the the reality is that everything we do today is shared with a third party. Every time you walk anywhere with your phone, you're telling the phone company where you are. Should the government be able to get that without any individualized suspicion? Can I suggest a a, a point where I think we do agree? Of course the government uh, uh, should, uh, wherever possible, be put to reasonable suspicion before it looks into individual activities. Uh, That is true even of the NSA program, which is the one that you have chosen as the uh, poster child for this issue. No one is allowed to search this data without a reasonable articulable suspicion. And the the question I thought was an excellent one, why would you uh, do that if there's an alternative? And the problem is there's not a good alternative. The alternative would be to leave it with the companies and search it there when we have some reason to be concerned about that individual phone number. But the companies get rid of that data on their own schedule. They've got no obligation to keep it, and they, they don't. Okay, right down front. My name is Shelley. I'd like to talk to the point of what data mining means to our privacy and our safety. I have to admit that whenever I hear a government person say, trust me, I get very skeptical about what they are doing. David Cole, take that. I mean, the, the, the same logic that gave them access to the phone records would give them access to your email records, to your internet records, to your bank records, to your email, your phone location data. And the, the danger is you put all that information together and they can determine everything about us. They, they, they can know more about us than our closest friends know, than our spouses know. And the only thing that, if you give them all that data, then the only thing that's stopping them from doing that are these so-called back-end safeguards, which uh, were routinely violated by, by the NSA. And we didn't have any opportunity to debate as to whether they were adequate or not because they were put in place entirely in secret. That, What's your thought, That they that you just described, they can put all this together. They can understand the that. government. Yeah, that sounds a lot more like Google than no, the no. government. Because, and you have to take this. This is actually this is a serious point. This is not the case that the government is tracking everything you do and can put it all together. And the government doesn't care what you're doing. They're actually, though, in the last 10 years with the explosion of social media, is this what you just described emerging in the private sector with a legal basis being a document which no one can really read and give informed consent to. Unlike the program we're talking about, which is subject to extreme safeguards rooted in the Constitution, backed up by both chambers of Congress and by the judiciary. And it's the private sector, if anything, which is emerging as the they in your scary scenario. Well, the the fact that the private sector may uh, may threaten our privacy is not a justification to, to, to allow the government to invade our privacy for two reasons. One, we can establish limits on, on the private sector. But two, there are lots more reasons to be concerned about the government having access to th- this information than the private sector having it. And that's reflected in our Constitution, which constitutionally limits government access to data, does not constitutionally limit private access to data. There's a reason for that, and, and, and it's a good reason. Okay, right up here. If you can stand, please. Thanks. Hi, uh, my name is Jamie. Uh, it seems to me the central issue here is a reasonable suspicion. So my question is, is the massive uh, surveillance that has been on debate here uh, necessary to ascertain whether someone is a reasonable suspicion or not? Let me, let me try this one. Uh, um, Stuart Baker. No one looks at these numbers without reasonable suspicion. That's the standard that is required by uh, some of the safeguards, not all of them, but some of the safeguards that are already built into this program. And, Stuart, just to clarify, so that, so that means the data is available, but nobody actually it goes is, and looks at right. it. That's right. Okay. That's right. I, I, so 
The only difference between a standard law enforcement search and the searches we're talking about in the context of NSA is they gathered the information first and put it in a database but didn't search it without a reasonable suspicion. The reason that they gathered it first was because it was not practical to leave it where it was. They would not be able to do the searches in the time with the efficiency that they needed to use. Others I'd like to respond? Uh, Part of it is that the harm comes from the initial collection. If we know we're under surveillance, our behavior changes, right? Every time that that you're on Google and you hesitate before you put that that search term in or, or you hesitate to go to that website, that does damage to the fabric of our society, the idea that there's a marketplace of ideas. So that original collection is a harm. But even with the, the limited number of searches, they go three hops. So it's the reasonable suspicious number, but the people they called, the people they called, and the people they called. It's like a big scoop that goes into this database. It pulls out all those numbers, which could rise into the millions. It pulls out 500 numbers. They, go, they put in 300. They brought out 500. They gave 500 numbers to the FBI. They didn't, they didn't bring out a great gob of data. We have time for one more question, so make it good. No Hi, my name is Sue, and my question is for Mr. Baker. It seems that the heart of your argument is the sense of credible threat, that the public believe that there is a credible threat. As a journalist, I've had the privilege of talking with numerous people who do counterterrorism and journalists who cover that, and they've looked me in the eye, and they said the threat is real. In the wake of um, supposed WMDs in Iraq, why should the public believe the government I, I, I think that's a, a fair question. Uh, the, uh, uh, and the, the real answer is you don't need to believe the government. Uh, sure, the government has access to particular threats, uh, but it doesn't take uh, security clearance to know that there are a lot of people who would like nothing better than to kill everybody in this auditorium. Uh, uh, we, we live, that's the world we live in, and the technology that uh, we all enjoy has empowered them. Uh, what I'm really uh, suggesting is that uh, having empowered everyone and increasingly empowered uh, people on the other side of the world who hate us uh, to cause serious damage here, we need to let the government use the technical tools that uh, are created uh, by lower costs for storing data to offset the advantage that the terrorists have. That's, uh, it seems to me you don't have to have a security clearance to have a common sense uh, appreciation of what the threat is and how empowered terrorists are these days. Michael German. We can demand accountability from our intelligence agencies, and we need to, because the only way they're going to be effective. We, we didn't know how bad things were on September 10th, 2001, were, right? So what happened now is we have less knowledge of what the intelligence community is doing and how effective it's being. That can't work. We have, we have to have transparency. That's how we get effective government. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is, spy on me, I would rather be safe. On to round three, closing statements. Our motion is, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Michael German. He's senior policy counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union's Washington Legislative Office. Michael German, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me tonight, and thanks to Stuart and Richard for a great debate. Let me close by talking about this problem from a a different standpoint. I'm hopefully the only person in this room who's actually been part of a terrorist conspiracy. So I I have a little bit of insight on, on what terrorists want. They want you to be afraid. They know they aren't powerful enough to overthrow a government. Uh, or, to, or popular enough to win an election. So their only tool is to use horrible violence to try to provoke a government into, into taking measures that damage itself. Uh, one of the interesting things I, I found working in terrorist groups, they always have a manifesto, right? They create a clandestine organization, and then the first thing they do is tell everybody in the world who they are. But the reason they do it is because they're trying to provoke grievance. So they, they want to let the government know who to go after. And that's what starts to undermine the government when it starts losing its legitimacy by doing things that that violate its own values. That's why I think the founding fathers were so genius when they created a system that 
inoculated against this kind of reaction, right? It made sure that the, the government was accountable to the people and limited in the power that it could use, particularly in violating the civil rights of, of Americans. What they knew wasn't that, that that was going to be a weak form of government, but that that would be the strongest government on earth. We don't need to be afraid. We need to demand accountability. We don't need to sacrifice privacy, especially for the illusion of secrecy. Thank you. Michael German. Our motion is spy on me. I'd rather be safe. And here to summarize his position supporting the motion, Richard Falconrath, former Deputy Homeland Security Advisor. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Falconrath. Thank, thank you, John, and thank you, uh, David and Michael, for uh, an excellent discussion and debate. Uh, I hope the audience understands that neither Stuart nor I are in favor of an unfettered, unchecked executive authority to conduct domestic spying. That's not what we're arguing here. There is another side to this, aside from the, the legitimate interest in personal privacy that we all have, and it's security. Uh, and this is, as I said at my opening, not abstract, and I'll end with a brief anecdote. I was Deputy Commissioner of Counterterrorism in the New York City Police Department. We were part of the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force. In September 2008, we learned of a case. We knew nothing about it until we were told, as a result of electronic surveillance, there was an individual in Denver developing a bomb and intending to transport it back to New York City for the purpose of attacking the New York City subway. We found out about that because of his electronic communication with his bomb-making trainer in Pakistan. Uh, FBI surveillance team in Denver acquired him and began surveilling him. In the course of his drive across the country with one to two kilograms of TATP explosive in his trunk, we began an investigation of his contacts, who he was in telephonic communication with. Quickly, his two key co-conspirators were identified and then subject to much higher levels of of intrusive investigation. This was a real plot against the city of New York, where I was at the NYPD, uh, and it was stopped, not entirely, but in large measure because of the techniques we were talking about here tonight. This is not abstract. There is another side to this, and it is something which is very, very valuable. Thank you, Richard Falkenrath. Our motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. And here, summarizing his position against this motion, David Cole, a professor at Georgetown University Law Center. Ladies and gentlemen, David Cole. Thank you. Um, Technology has changed uh, the calculus of surveillance in a dramatic way. It used to be if the government wanted to find out everything about who you hung out with, what books you read, what you thought – Uh, It was very difficult, very costly for it to do so. And that was a check on the government's ability to invade our privacy. That check has gone out the window because of the uh, – uh, because of Al Gore uh, and, the, and, and the internet. We now – it's now possible to learn everything about us through this third-party information, which Richard Falconrath says we shouldn't be concerned about uh, at all. I think we need to be concerned about it. I think we can strike a proper balance between the technology that makes it possible for this kind of very, very broad surveillance and the need to find bad guys. But we can't do so if the programs are run in secret and and if we haven't had an opportunity to have a democratic uh, deliberation. And when we don't have that democratic deliberation, it seems to me it's very likely that the security people are going to go overboard on the side of security. And when they're collecting texts, they're collecting data on every text that I send to my high school daughter when I go to pick her up from school and she hasn't come out and I say, where are you? I'm here. Where are you? I'm here. Where are you? I'm here. Why does the NSA need to know that information? The only reason that they have that access to that information is because they did it in secret, because if they'd done it in public and told us they wanted to gather that information to keep us safe, I think we would have said no, and you should say no. Thank you, David Cole. Our motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe and here to summarize his position in support of this motion, Stuart Baker, the first Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. Ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Baker. Thanks, John. Uh, You know, um, uh, when I started as general counsel of the National Security Agency, uh, Janet Reno, the attorney general, came out for a visit, uh, and this was a a high-stakes meeting. She was deeply skeptical about whether this spy agency could be trusted at all. Uh, We were walking through an operations center with her when the director looked at a corporal who was 
going over uh, uh, some intercepts, and he said uh, to the corporal, stand up, sir, and uh, what do you do if you find uh, communication by an American? That corporal plucked out of a mass of people uh, doing the uh, intercepts, said, sir, we uh, segregate that. We cannot disseminate it unless there's foreign intelligence in it. Uh, We must uh, take the, uh, must anonymize the data and uh, destroy it if there's no intelligence in it, Uh, uh, which was the, the rule. And I thought to myself, you know, the first rule of lawyering is don't ask a question if you don't know what the answer is going to be. Uh, but the director was absolutely sure that you could pick anybody out of that agency and ask him what the rules were. He would tell you and would be proud of the fact that he knew them and would obey them. That is the culture of the National Security Agency. Uh, they are subject to lots of constraints. We cannot say all of this will be public or we might as well not try to gather intelligence. Uh, We have to set rules, we have to count on people to enforce them, and then we have to count on the goodwill of our uh, agencies to carry them out uh, uh, because that's our only hope of being able to do intelligence under law. I think we can do it. Thank you, Stuart Baker. And that concludes closing statements. All right, so it's all in now. I have the results. Remember, we have you vote twice, once before the debate and once again after the debate. And the team whose numbers have moved the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. Our motion is this. Spy on me, I would rather be safe. The initial vote, before hearing the arguments, 26% of you agreed with this motion, 41% were against it, and 33% were undecided. So those are the first results. Remember, you need to uh, move the most in percentage point terms to win this game. Here is the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote is 29%. They went from 26% to 29%. That's a 3% increase. That's the number to beat. Let's see the team against the vote. They were 41% to start. They were 62% at the end. They clearly beat that 3%. They are our winner. Our congratulations to them. The motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. The team arguing against it has won. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience in the Burke Theater at the U.S. Navy War Memorial in Washington, D.C. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.